Christ is the source of salvation. And God saw fit that only by his method could we be saved. And therefore only he could boast and our only boasting could be in him. See, I told you at the beginning that God's word has power, it has an effect, and our words, they accomplish nothing. Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatton. The Bible has poetry in it and some good morals and a wealth of obscenity and upwards of a thousand lies, Mark Twain. It is, is man merely a mistake of God's or God merely a mistake of man, Friedrich Nietzsche. All thinking men are atheists, Ernest Hemingway. Properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. Isaac Asimov. Every single one of those men is considered to be a genius of, the, of human history. Like an absolute titan. Somebody who knew what was up. Those were the people that have guided society and shown people how to live. I want you to consider this. None of them can adequately explain where morality comes from or why it exists. Not one of those men ever explained the purpose of life, what to do with it. The, the person who came the closest, in most people's opinion, is Nietzsche. And uh, Nietzsche never gave us more than uh, ambiguous directions. G.K. Chesterton said, Nietzsche will tell you to live to a higher principle. Higher than what? What is higher? It's a direction. He said, what, what actually is higher? He never defines it. Right? So you have no purpose for life. None of them ever explained what life after death is. What, like, why, did, why get out of bed in the morning, right? My question ultimately to atheists has always been, <clears throat> why, why keep existing? Why try to do anything? Right? None of these men could ever explain what happened after we died. Jordan Peterson recently said that no critic of Christianity in history has ever overcome Christianity's actual belief system. It's actual statement. See, people take down caricatures of Christianity all the time, right? They they make what we say sillier than it is, or they straw man it, they make it, they make it ridiculous, and then they dismantle it and they go, see? See how silly that is? It's like, yeah, the version that you propose is pretty silly. Right? But nobody has ever actually cut to the core of what Christianity's claims and beliefs are. And destroyed it right because if they ever had it it wouldn't be the prevailing and dominant worldview system in human history right it shaped culture it shaped the world we live in right I heard a comedian say once if you want to know how we know the Christians won what year is it right 2023 since what since Jesus, right? Like that's what we're all counting away from. It's what we, we consider all history before that, counting down to that point, right? So it is the prevailing belief system that has shaped human history. I heard a guy in college say one time, people who study this thing, this kind of thing, they, they understand, they all believe that, you know, Allah and the God of the Jews and the, the New Testament God, the Christian God, they're all one. They're all the same God. It's like, really? Everybody who studies it thinks that. Like that's that's an incredibly amazing that's an amazing statement, considering that there has been, I mean, a litany of some of the most genius men in human history who have studied this thing and disagree with that statement, right? Because we know that that the bottom line of all the all the religions is that they all make contradictory statements, so they cannot all be equally true. Right? So it's impossible to say that they're all one God or they're all the same tradition. Turns out the more that you actually study Christianity, the more solid it becomes. We are actually the number one, uh, we have the number one most robust apologetic system of any religion. Right? So 
when you think about apologetics, apologetics, if you don't know what that is, it is the it's the logic and reasoning and argument behind your belief system. It's it's a way that we defend it, right? So we come up with all the reasons why it makes sense. And, and apologetics also seeks to defend against attacks, right? When somebody says, well, here's a contradiction in the Bible or here's why the Bible can't be true. Apologetics is what comes in and says, well, this is why that's wrong. This is why you're wrong. This is why we're right, all right? Why are we the most robust uh, uh, religion when it comes to apologetics? Because the more you study other religions, the more holes you begin to find. And if you really want to stick with it, you have to kind of stop, stop looking deeper. Right, But the exact opposite is true of the one true religion, Christianity, because the deeper we go, the more we close all the perceived holes, the more we overcome all the seeming contradictions, the more we go, oh, actually, there is an explanation for that. Oh, actually, there is a way that this makes sense. So Christians have been able to go further with apologetics than anyone else because we're constantly finding the reasons why this is actually true, why this actually makes sense. The more we test it, the more solid it is. Now the question is, why do some people think Christianity is brilliant? It's the answer, it's the truth. And some people think it is an absolute fantasy. It's crazy town. Why would you ever believe this? Right, again, some of the smartest men in human history, some of them, have said that this is it's bonkers. Christianity has to be fake. I've used this analogy before, but I can't get over how perfect it is. It's one of my favorite illustrations I've ever seen. It's from the movie Indiana Jones, right? And so if you've been with me long enough, you've heard me say this one before, but there's this scene in the third movie. He is, um, he's looking out over a chasm and the the mythical uh, clue he has is that he has to take a leap of faith. And he's like looking at this chasm and it's like, there's no way that he can jump this. There's just no way at all. And he can't see any way to get across. Well, he finally, he just, he does it. He, he takes a leap of faith. He basically steps out. And when he steps out, he realizes there's something else under his foot. And as he moves out further, his perspective changes and he can see that there's actually a, a rock bridge from the perspective of the opening, it blends into the other side of the mountain. It looks like it's not there. So he had to have faith. He steps out on that faith. But then as he as he sees the evidence of his faith, he begins to see why it makes sense, why it's there, why it's reasonable. Right? But there's no explanation for that on the front end. No one was no one was gonna be behind him that's able to go, just step out there. There's clearly gonna be a bridge. He doesn't have that kind of evidence or that kind of facts or reasoning. He has only to have faith, and then it is revealed to him that there's an answer. This is why Christianity looks crazy to some, and it looks amazing to others. Because the difference is which direction you're looking at it from. If you are looking at that bridge from the perspective that has not yet had faith, it's not there. There's nothing, it's crazy. It would be crazy to step out here. And yet, if you're already standing on it, or if you've reached the other side and you can look back and see it, suddenly it makes perfect sense. Suddenly, everything about it is real. It's tangible. See, people who have already acted on faith are the people who can see how reasonable it is. They're the people who can see just why this is so perfect of an answer. And yet, if you haven't had faith yet, It just looks crazy. We're in a series called Church Fails. The church in Corinth is, they're in turmoil. They've got a lot of problems going on. They've sent a a letter and an oral report to Paul, and they've said, man, all this crazy stuff has happened in the church. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, is answering a, a, a litany of these questions. He's saying these are, all the ways that you guys need to fix the problems going on in your church. That's what the letter of 1 Corinthians is doing. But the question we have to ask ourselves as as we begin to get into this letter is, why do we behave certain ways? Why do we behave the way we behave, right? And see, Paul doesn't miss this because he doesn't jump straight into all of the issues. He starts 
with the foundational issue, which is who we are and what we believe. Because everything else flows out of that. If we don't understand who we are, if we don't understand our identity, and we don't understand what we believe in and why it's why it's what we believe in, why it's reasonable, why it's the only thing we can believe in, then we are going to make a variety of decisions that don't make sense, that don't derive from that, that, that lead us into turmoil. But if we understand our foundation, who we are and what we stand on, then all of a sudden everything makes sense added on top of that. So Paul is starting, we saw last week that he says, this is who you are, this is your identity in Christ. And this week, he's going to say, this is why you understand God's decisions, the way that he's saving you, why he's saving you, what he's saving you through, why it makes so much sense to you, and yet why it looks so crazy to the rest of the world. See, I have a a belief system about the way that I think that preachers should preach, uh, the way that I try to be in this class, and and it's this. If you've been in church your whole life, you might have been at a church, if you've been at church your whole life and you haven't been here, you might have been at a church where you heard several sermons that are really good moral lessons. Right? You might have heard somebody open up the Good Samaritan text and go, this is a story of how we're supposed to be a good person, how we're supposed to help other people. Right, And that's like fine, nothing wrong with that. That's a lot of times it's how we tell Bible stories to our kids, right? But that's actually not the baseline of how or why we should behave in a good way. See, it's gospel-centered. We are good people or we are trying to be good people, not because that's just good, but because we've been saved. We've been bought. We've been redeemed. We're no longer enslaved to sin and on our way to separation from God eternally, but instead we've been brought into close relationship with Him. And now, because out of a pure reaction, a thankful heart because of who He is to us, we turn around and we act a certain way towards other people. Right? It's a natural consequence of the redemption that God has performed in our life. The fact that He has bought us with His blood. See, when I preach, I don't ever want to open up the Bible and go, here's 10 tips on how to have a good marriage. I want to open up the Bible and say, here's how we live in our marriages because God has saved us. Now, you see how that's different? You see how the motivation becomes, I've been bought, therefore I behave as someone who has been bought, not simply try to be better (coughs) tomorrow, I guess. See you next week, right? So, Corinth is having these issues, and Paul wants to refocus them on what? On God's wisdom, on why God wants us to act a certain way. So what we're going to see today is God's wisdom versus human wisdom, the difference between these two things. Paul is going to call, Paul calls the gospel in Romans God's power to save people, right? He says the gospel is God's power to save. I want you to understand that this word power uh, we have some misconceptions with it. I want to make it synonymous with the, with the word effective, right? What it means is that the gospel is how God affects your salvation. It's how it occurs, right? If God, uh, God chose that this would be the way that your salvation is completed in you, right? It's through the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, by, um, being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of those who have understanding, I will confound. Uh, where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the first thing I want you to see is verse 18. Verse 18 is really the thesis to this entire section. Verse 18, Paul is laying out, this is what we're talking about. We are talking about human wisdom and how it views the cross or God's wisdom and how it views the cross, right? The cross is the the mechanism by which God chose to save us, right? Jesus was crucified and that act, is what we 
put our faith in, that's what we believe on to save us, to redeem us. It is the power that affects salvation in us. Now, just like this bridge, what, what Paul is saying, just like this bridge in Indiana Jones, what Paul is saying is, if you're looking at the cross from the side that doesn't believe on it, it looks foolish. It looks like it, how could it possibly have accomplished anything? But when you put your faith in it, when you begin to walk out onto and trust in that reality, you can see clearly how it saves you, why it saves you. A theme here is he says the word of the cross. I want you to see something here. The word of the cross or the the gospel message, the way that God has chosen to save us, it has power in it. God's words have power. That's that's a theme that runs all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, right? When God speaks, things happen, right? And I want you to see that the theme of word is going to be throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, but in this section, it's used to show, show us this. God's word has power. It has an effect. Your boasting is empty. It has no effect. See, your words can't accomplish anything, and yet God's words have an effect, a power in them. He quotes Isaiah, and part of what he's quoting here is he's talking to his Jewish audience to say the thing that God said in Isaiah about God basically disdaining human wisdom, it's come true in the cross. It's come true in a perfect way. He's appealing to them to say, you believe in Isaiah, what what Isaiah said that God was going to make wisdom foolishness and i'm telling you that what happened on the cross was that happening in a perfect form it finally occurred the way isaiah said it would and it's so clear now right he's saying look at what you already believe and then see what god has actually done how it's unfolded how it's come true and then in verse 20 i want you to see this it's almost like a taunt it says where are the wise of this age where are the debaters where are all the people i, w- I want you to understand something there is a misconception, and I think it, it has to do with the environments that a lot of you guys go through at school. There is a misconception that we're the underdogs, right? That when we look at a situation, when we, when we hear arguments against Christianity, we have, to, we have to do this. Well, I'm just supposed to have faith. I guess it doesn't make sense, and all the good arguments are on the other side because you can't prove God. No, here's the reality. If, if you have those kind of doubts, let's talk. Write down your questions and let's talk. Right, because not because I have all the answers, but because I've looked at the apologists who have answered every single one of these questions. And the reality is, we're not the underdogs. The explanations are on our side. Right? It's the same. I started this out by listing these men and their quotes, and I said, here's the thing they have a lot of criticisms of Christianity, but none of them could answer the questions that Christianity answers. None of them could actually come through with, what? Now what? If they're right, why get out of bed? That's the bottom line. I don't understand why you would ever do anything if if Nietzsche turns out to be correct. But all of the answers are actually on our side. We are not the fools here. So how is God's power weak? How is God's power foolish? Right? It's a confusing <laughs> phrase, and we're going to dive into that. Right? Again, it's a matter of perspective. Look at verse 21. For since the wisdom of God... For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Okay. God's wisdom made it so that man could not find God on their own. Okay, God's wisdom was also to choose that there was not an alternative path to God. The only path was through God's wisdom, not in addition to God's wisdom. Not like God made the biggest, best way, but then there's some other ways. There's some other courses, some other wisdoms that you could follow that you could get to God. There is only one way, and God made sure that our wisdom couldn't find it on its own. Part of this is so that we couldn't take credit See, he says that it's received through preaching. Okay, I want you to understand this. There's a difference between what we call general revelation and special revelation. If God never revealed anything about himself, if we didn't have the Bible, if, if no one had ever, uh, you know, met an angel, talked to God, 
talked to Jesus, right? None of this stuff had happened. There's no way we would have ever found him. There's no way that anyone in human history would have ever found God, right? Now, the reason for this, general revelation testifies to who God is, but special revelation is the only way that God has actually shown us himself, right? And, and part of the evidence of this is that if only given general revelation, even if you might think, seems like there had to be a God, you could still never get to him. You could never find him. You could never find out more about him. You could only see the testimony of nature and say, there should be a God. This looks like somebody made it, but that's as far as you could make it. See, the reality of special revelation is that without it, you can't actually come to know God. You can't actually be in relationship with God. And he uses the word preach here, but he's not, he's not talking about what I'm doing. He's talking about testifying. He's talking about telling people the gospel. He's talking about the way the message spreads, even from God's own mouth, right? Even from Jesus himself. He's talking about the message, the preaching of the gospel, the spreading of the cross across all of human history, right? That is what he's talking about. Without it, we could not come to God. I want you to understand something. Apologetics, apologetics cannot convince somebody into heaven, okay? Apologetics, reasoning, it can strengthen our faith. It might even convince somebody to the point where they're willing to take a step of faith, but you can't convince somebody across the line into heaven. That's not the way it works. See, because no matter what, at the end of the day, even if I convince you to step out into that chasm, onto that bridge that you can't see, you still have to have faith to actually move on to that absolute unknown. Right? Even if you think with all your mind, there's got to be something. There has to, something has to work here. There's, there's evidence that, you know, maybe I saw somebody walk across it. I don't know how they did it, but I saw them. But I still have to actually take a step. I have to believe. I have to go out on faith, right? And without that, you can't just convince yourself into heaven. You have to actually have steps of faith. I want you to understand that apologetics is a great thing, but it's actually better for believers. Apologetics strengthens our own faith. It helps us understand why what we believe is reasonable. It's not actually a great place to start with your non-believing friends, especially your really combative non-believing friends. Here's the reality. Your really combative non-believing friends have a heart issue, and no amount of head knowledge is going to change that, right? If you want to appeal to your... Now, if you have somebody whose heart is seeking Jesus and they have questions, explain away. That's a great moment for apologetics. You comfort those, those doubts so that they will cross that line in their heart. But if you have somebody who has a heart issue, their heart is hardened, and they just want to play head games all day, that's a waste of your time. That person is playing stump the, trump, stump the chump, and there's no ability to get around that. There's no... Because their heart is too hardened. Their heart is not going to move on that, right? And honestly, it's actually a more effective strategy when you have a friend like that to engage their heart directly and say, hey, listen, man, I'm willing to answer your questions, but the issue is that you don't actually want to know. The issue is that you don't actually want to hear and believe. You just want to see if you can trick me out of my faith or convince me to stop believing, right? See, don't go at that person's head. Go at that person's heart. If you have somebody whose heart is there and they have a couple of tricky questions, then alleviate those doubts so that you can go back to the heart issue. No one gets saved just in their head. That's not the way it works. Apologetics is to give us more confidence. I want you to see in verse 22, there are essentially, he begins uh, three groups that he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about Jews, Greeks, and us. Right? So Jews, they're waiting on a Messiah. They, they saw God in their history acting on their behalf in the Old Testament. And I want you to see this. For them, signs equal power. He says that Jews are waiting on a sign. Why? What does that mean? They believed in the power of God and they were always looking for it. They were looking for his mighty power, right? What, what kind of things they see in their past? They crossed... The, the sea standing up on both sides of them. They crossed on dry land. They, the, the walls of Jericho fell down. The giant Goliath is defeated with one slingshot from a small shepherd boy, right? They've seen signs of God's power.
power, and that's what they're looking for to save them. They want a conquest. They want a king who's going to show up and conquer the Romans. They're looking for a sign of God's power. Well, the Greeks, the Greeks, they're more like us. They have worldly wisdom. They have virtues. They have things that they have made uh, that, that are basically making them self-righteous. Now, you might think that our world isn't virtuous today. The problem is that you, you misunderstand what they're calling virtues, right? See, they're still virtuous in their own eyes. It's just not the virtues that you grew up being told were virtues. It's not the same virtues of the Greeks, things like honor and justice and, and uh, you know, uh, just being a good moral person, right? It's a different kind of morality, but it's nonetheless a self-righteous, virtuous attitude. It's a, I can save myself, right? Why do you think people are such big adherents to some of the craziest ideologies in our world today? Because if they can be a good person, according to the wisdom of this age, they think that will save them. They think that's what matters. They're holding on to, with a religious-like faith, a core belief system, a way that they think that they're supposed to act. See, the Greeks were doing that just the same way we do that today. Now, the Greeks were looking for wisdom. Why weren't the Jews looking for that wisdom? Because the Jews believed they already had it. The Jews believed that they had wisdom in the Old Testament. They didn't need wisdom. They needed power. They needed to see God's power. The Greeks, they had the they had accomplished you know almost world domination. I mean, uh, the Romans and the Greeks aren't an identical people group, but the Hellenistic way of life was the Roman way of life. It had spread across the known world. They had the power. They were looking for some kind of virtue, some kind of saving self-righteous behavior. And then in verse 23, he talks about us. He says, but we, we're not looking for wisdom. We're not looking for power. We preach Christ crucified. That is what saves us. That is the focal point. That is the only thing that matters. That is what we base everything around. I want you to see why this is. Why he says that the Jews see this as a stumbling block. They're looking for a powerful king and they're being told, as a matter of fact, what you got was a carpenter that was murdered by you, right? That's your powerful king. That's your Messiah. Oh, and by the way, they, I, I actually didn't understand this until recently, and this this has blown my mind, so I'm going to share this with you. I didn't realize that that it, it's so self-evident to me. This is a, um, a problem of our, of our church bias, right? It's so self-evident to me that the Messiah would have to be God himself, that Jesus had to be God himself. It makes sense to me, right? I didn't realize that the Jews are not looking for God himself in Messiah form. They actually were looking for a human person all human who had been sent by God, but was not God himself, right? So for them, it's not offensive that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. As a matter of fact, if you go study that period of Jewish history, a lot of people were claiming to be the Messiah, and several times the high priest got on board. It's not that anybody claimed to be the Messiah that offended them. It's that somebody claiming to be the Messiah said, I am one with God. I am God himself in full human form. That was what was offensive. That's what was blasphemous for them. And so now you're telling them, hey, you're looking for this man sent by God who's going to have power. He's going to have a sign of God. He's going to lead you to victory. But what I'm telling you is the carpenter who claimed to be God himself that you hung up on a tree, which was an Old Testament curse to be hung on a tree, that you are responsible for his death, that was actually the Messiah. That was God's power. See how this would be a stumbling block to a Jew? They would have gone, absolutely not. Right? There's no way that's possible. They freaked out over this. That's why it's called a stumbling block to them. They hung God himself up on a tree. They cursed God. And he died. This was a huge stumbling block to the Jews. Then you have the Gentiles. They are saving themselves, they have honor, they have virtue, they have self-sufficiency. Ultimately, you can sum it all up in this word. They had success. Does that sound like our generation at all? What is the highest moral value? Success. It's success. And, and that moral value transcends any of the, of the coming and goings of the given moment of whatever we call moral. Because you have to navigate whatever moral system we're in the middle of to be successful. That's why we cancel you when you when you step across one of those lines, we're taking away your success. 
the highest moral value is success. And the more successful you can be, the more likely you are to have achieved whatever this life's about. And if you believe in God, well then clearly if you're successful now, you must be blessed by God. Even the Jews thought that. They thought the people that were the richest were the shoe-ins for heaven. The reality is the Gentiles thought success was the highest value and you have a criminal who got killed as the as God, as the savior? Like I'm supposed to I'm supposed to say, well, it's not about being virtuous, it's not about being successful, it's about believing that that guy that they murdered like had a trial, criminally crucified, that's the guy that saves us. Right? Do you see how that's foolish? That doesn't make any sense to a Greek. They would have looked at that and they'd have been like, you're nuts. That doesn't even make sense. Let's add something to this. The Greeks believed that when they died, they finally got freed of their physical bodies. They got to be spirits. They got to go to the spirit world. So now you're telling them that God, his goal was to die and come back and be in his physical form again. They're like, no, that, that doesn't track, right? That doesn't make any sense. And then you say, and the good news is that'll happen to us. And they're like, I'm out. I don't want to be back in my physical body, right? It, none of this makes sense to them. It's foolishness. You see how all of this is backwards, right? This is, I mean, it's the same for us, right? Our prevailing moral system, if you're not aware of this, the prevailing uh, moral truth in our society today is, is becoming paganism at a super fast rate. And, and I don't just mean people who blatantly adhere to paganism. I mean that our culture has started adopting that moral value system writ large, right? Whether we call it that or not, it is paganism. Well, what does paganism, you know, tell us? Essentially, when we die, we're some form of one with nature and we're going to just kind of meld into the ether of existence, right? I mean, it, paganism is kind of wild. There's all sorts of different directions of it, but most of it is just that this is all there is. The physical world is what there is. So when you die, you just become like a spiritual attachment of what you see is what you get, right? And so it's the exact same thing of saying, I don't want to come back and be a part of a physical person again, a physical body. It's foolishness. The resurrection doesn't make sense. It sounds dumb. See, here's, here's the beautiful thing. Both, both the sign of God's power and the wisdom of God's power, of God's way, are revealed in Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross, perfectly revealed, right? You want to know why our society is so desperate to go back to something like paganism? See, part of it is because the, the Jews and the Greeks were looking for something they didn't have yet, and it was revealed perfectly in Jesus. We already have the perfect revelation of what God was going to do, how perfect it is. So the only way to deny that is to run the other direction. I mean, you have to, you have to get away from it because it's already there. No one has the excuse now of, of looking for it, right? For, for thousands of years, people didn't know how God was going to do it. Now we know. And it, it, it makes perfect sense. So once that's laid out in front of you, you don't have like an alternative, better option you just have to get away from it. That's why our society is sprinting away from the truth of Jesus Christ. It says, but what are we doing? Look at verse 24. But to those who are, who are the called, both Jews and Greek, Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. Okay, Christ is synonymous with the gospel. I want you to understand this. I cannot say this enough. Jesus wasn't just somebody showing us the gospel, showing us the way to God. He is the way to God, right? He's described as the door, right? So he's not the guy standing at the door. He is the door. You have to go through Jesus to get to God. That is essential. So Christ is the gospel. The gospel is the power. The power is the effective means of your salvation. So the effective means of your salvation is Jesus Christ crucified. That is what saves you. It is the central element. We call the crucifixion the humiliation of Christ. I want you to see this. God's weakest moment is stronger than anything any human has ever done. God's weakest moment, okay? Without a doubt, the weakest moment of God's entire uh, reality that we have lived in, that humans have existed in, was the moment that he allowed himself to be killed 
on a cross. That was his weakest moment. And God's weakest moment, his most humiliating moment, was so strong and so powerful that it made it possible for all of humanity to be be redeemed. You can't even redeem your own life, much less every human in all of human history. God's weakest moment was infinitely more powerful than anything that any human has ever had to offer. The strongest human in all of human history can't save themselves, much less everybody. God's weakness was still stronger than any of us. See, the Jews were looking for a sign. They were looking for power. They thought that their righteousness gave them power, but their power was nothing compared to God's weakness. God's most foolish moment, the moment that he let himself be hung on a cross, it was wiser than any wisdom of any age in all of human history. It was the only thing that allows people to be saved. It was so wise. Paul is looking at a Greek and Gentile audience and saying, you're seeking wisdom. You're seeking success. You're trying to figure out the way through this life. And yet God's most foolish moment is the only way through this life. It's the only way to get to God. It's the only way to be successful. Christ is the source of salvation. And God saw fit that only by his method could we be saved. And therefore, only he could boast, and only our only boasting could be in him. See, I told you at the beginning that God's word has power, it has an effect, and our words, they accomplish nothing. See, our boasting is in things that cannot save us. There is nothing that you can brag about in your life that will save you, that is yours to brag about. There is only that you can brag about the fact that Jesus Christ has saved you. You can only boast in what God is doing. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to shame the things that are strong, and the insignificant things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, and the things that are not, so he may nullify the things that are so that no human may boast before God. Paul is saying uh, two things here. The first one, the the traditional reading of this text, uh, verse 26, is he's saying, how many of you were wise and powerful? How many of you got saved and and were already wise and powerful people? Now, part of the way I want you to understand that is like, why, why is it that Christianity appeals to the weak and the broken of the world? Right? It's because there's two reasons why those who have a lot, those who are strong and rich and powerful, there's two reasons why they don't come over uh, to Christianity as often. For one thing, there's a pride in that they, they can't accept that they're not the ones saving themselves. It's like, if you're being successful in this life, it's really hard to go, I don't need God. I, I mean, like, why would I, why would I need to be saved? I'm doing great, right? There's a pride there. And then the other aspect is they don't want to give up what they've already attained. They've got so much. And and again, we can't picture all that God has to offer. Heaven is a hard place to conceptualize and to understand why heaven is going to be infinitely better than, than the greatest life you could have right now. Right? And so when we look at what we can have right in front of our faces, the things we can see and touch, it's really hard to give that up for something that we can't even conceptualize something that we can't even really grasp. So what's happening is he's saying Christianity appeals to those who are disillusioned with the world around them, who see that this place doesn't have anything to offer. It's easier to see that when you're not holding a bunch of stuff that makes you feel like this place has got something to offer, right? But then there's a second way I want you to see this. He's also saying to them, how many of you still think that your former ways were wise and powerful? See, the the thing about the, the church is that we have evidence from, uh, I think the best evidence is actually Romans chapter 16. It shows the diversity of the church, and not just ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity. I'm talking, there are everyone from slaves to the richest people in society became Christians during this period of time. There was a bunch of that, okay? So what what is this statement? I mean, how do you explain if you're saying, well, Christianity appeals to the weak and the broken, right? How do you explain that, that there are rich and powerful people that sometimes come over to Christianity. Well, the the reason is because 
those people, when they come over, they have a look back on their life and they say, what I thought was rich and powerful really wasn't. What I thought was wise, what I thought saved me, it didn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't have the appeal that this has, right? Paul is going to recount in the New Testament his all of his qualifications. He's going to say, I was as powerful, as wise, as set up. I was achieving everything that this life had to offer. And he literally says, and I consider it dung. I consider it garbage. It's junk in my past. It has no value. It had no effect. It couldn't save me. It didn't matter. I see Paul looks back and he says, none of that was wise. None of that was powerful. None of that was a sign. None of that could save me. So in this passage, he's not just saying that Christianity appeals to the weak and the broken. It appeals to everyone who realizes they're weak and they're broken. It doesn't matter how physically rich you are. It doesn't matter how physically powerful you are. He's saying that if you can look at the riches and power of this world and go, oh no, I'm still broken. I'm still in need of a savior. Then Christianity appeals to you. See, the people who are rich, who we from the outside look at as rich and powerful, who come over to Christianity, they are realizing that nothing they have has anything to offer them. Becoming a Christian doesn't certainly doesn't make you more wise and powerful. This world hates it. Hates us for being Christians. Right? When you're a true believer, it tends to make your life get degraded in this life a lot of ways. Right? People start coming after you, start becoming the problem, right? Our culture right now won't even hesitate to call you racist. I mean, you could you could like indicate you go to church and you're a racist. Just that's just done. Why? Because they hate us. Because we are we are not buying into their system, their wisdom. Verse 27 he says, God chose his humility to shame our pride. Think about this. God chose to become a man. That's already a humiliation for God. Already. God, infinite God, decided to become a man. Not only did he decide to become a man, but he came back as a baby, right? So that's even more ridiculous. That's more humiliating. That's more weak. Then that baby grows up to become a conqueror. Nope. A carpenter, right? Like he he literally just takes a menial blue-collar job in one of the most hated nations in the world, also an oppressed nation at this point, right? He then grows up to be put on trial for things he didn't do and killed. What about that looks good for God? None of that system makes sense. Go read the ancient mythological accounts of the Greek gods. They were powerful. They were they could do whatever they wanted on a whim, right? They could just they could play with people like playthings like toys and all of a sudden the one true God comes as a man in baby form to become a carpenter who gets executed on a criminal trial. None of that is how you would write that story if you were like just making it up. Right? That that's foolishness. That's not that doesn't make any sense. And I want you to see that God did all that because he was making peace, not war. See, if God had wanted to make war on us, he would have just come back as a conquering king. Just come back and wipe this all out. But Jesus came back in the form of a baby because nothing cries out, I want to make peace with you more than the face of a baby. It's the weakest form God could take. It was the most peaceful form God could take. See, there's a pride that wants to fight against the idea that we needed to be saved by a baby and not conquered by a king. But the reality is we've already been conquered by sin. We are not free people that God had to come conquer. We are conquered people that God had to come save. It says that God chose the insignificant. Do you ever feel insignificant? I do. I mean, like none of us, I don't think any of us are famous. (laughs) And I mean, as far as I can tell, like famous people don't tend to overcome that insecurity either. Right? The reality is oftentimes it's easy to feel insignificant in this life, to feel small or broken or weak. The message of the gospel is a message of hope because God actually chose the insignificant. He came for you not because 
you were rich and wise and powerful and famous. He came for you because you're broken, you're weak, you're nothing. He came for you out of pure love for you, right? He didn't come for you because you had something to offer him. Certainly not. Matter of fact, the only thing you had to offer God was that you spat in his face, that you spit in his face every time you sin. And yet, in spite of the fact that you don't have anything to offer God, he came to get you. As insignificant as you were, right? That's what that passage where, where Jesus says, does God not take care of the grass? Does God not take care of the sparrows? How much more will your heavenly Father watch out for you? You are, by any measurable standard, insignificant. And the message of the gospel is that even because of that, God chose you and he loves you. And he died for you. That's insane. That is foolishness. God made salvation out of nothing to take away our boasting. Look at verse 30. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let the ones who boast, boast in the Lord. Don't you see this? God made it possible for you to be in Christ. If God doesn't send his son, Jesus, then how are you going to ever believe in him? Right? There's no way to be in Christ if God doesn't, conduct all of this, if God doesn't set this plan in motion, even at the foundation of the world, right? You are in Christ because God made it possible, and Christ is everything. It says he's the wisdom from God. He was the way to get to God. He was righteousness. He's the only way to be right with God. He is your sanctification. He's the only way to be not sinful, to become like God, to become Christ-like, to be one with him. And he is the redemption. He is the only thing that can buy you out of your slavery to sin. Right? See, here's the thing. Sin and slavery to sin and hell has a legitimate claim on your life. You actually owe a debt to God that is paid in your own death. It is only the death of Jesus on the cross that can possibly pay that debt and buy you back. There is nothing else. And there's only one correct reaction to all this. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want you to see this. The only correct reaction is to boast in the Lord. Now, I'm going to break this down into two, two behaviors, but I want you to understand something. These are not two different things. This is one thing explained in two ways so you can see how it, how it might manifest out of you. Okay, The one thing is boasting in the Lord. But the two ways that that shows itself is worshiping and testifying, right? But I want you to see something. Worshiping God is testifying, and testifying to God is an act of worship. They are the same thing. It is one act. Here's the difference. Have you been floored by God recently? Have you been brought to your knees in worship because you can't imagine, you can't even sustain in your brain the reality that he came for you, that he died for you, that the gospel has saved you? That's what causes us to worship and therefore testify to who God is. Have you testified recently? Have you been so overflowing with what God has done in your life that you couldn't help but put him on, on proclamation, that you couldn't help but tell other people about him? Right? See, because when you're telling other people about God, you are worshiping Him. They're the same thing. The question is, have you done either of these recently? When was the last time you truly worshiped God? When was the last time you truly testified to God? See, if you're not boasting in the Lord, you might be boasting in things of this world. Is your only hope truly in this one true God, in the name of Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross, risen from the dead to show that he completed what he said he would do. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, pride is any version in any facet of not needing or wanting God. Humility is the understanding that only God's work 
Christ's work on the cross can save you. And when you put your total faith in what Christ has done on the cross, God gives you grace. God covers you with His grace. God God wants you to match His humility with your humility. right? Now, not, not that you'll match the magnitude of it ever. He wants that your behavior is mimicking His. See, He came in humility to show you how to be humble. We're going to get into this, this book of 1 Corinthians and these church fails, and we're going to talk about all these different topics that are going on in the church. I mean, just... You won't believe how messed up the church in Corinth is as we read through this book. It's amazing. But the reality is that we got to get this right first. You can't fix any of the problems of what's going on in the church in Corinth if you don't have the foundational message in place. That's why Paul spends so much time here at the very beginning covering what it is we put our hope in. If you forget this, if you forget your identity, if you fail to see God's wisdom, if you fail to understand His power, everything else is going to fail. Nothing else we do matters. We can go through this whole book step by step, and we will miss everything it's trying to say if we don't get this piece right. That's why Paul starts here. He understands that this is foundational to everything else he's going to tell them to do. See, don't hear me over the next several weeks that we that we go through this book, don't hear me say, and here's how this part of 1 Corinthians tells us to be a good person. Hear me say this. This is how this part of 1 Corinthians tells us how to react to the truth of what Christ did on the cross. Over and over again, that's the message. We will look at what it means to be the body of believers, what it means to be in Christ from the perspective of what it means to be in Christ. Once I understand what it means to be in Christ, all the behaviors that come with that are natural. They're just reactions. They're not adherence to certain moral codes. I can't stop boasting in the Lord, and that is why I behave with testimony and worship. That's the point. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.